Well, good morning. For those of you that I don't know, my name's Deirdre Chance. I'm an associate minister here at Twin Cities Church. Um, Part of my roles and responsibilities under authority of the elders is to preach a couple of sermons every year. So I got to preach last week, and I'm here again this week. And what a great, timely psalm to have. You know, here we are, the Sunday after Super Tuesday, I guess a lot of states reported record voter turnout for the primary, excuse me. Um, Minnesota was one among many states that way out, had way more voter turnout than they did for the last primaries. You know, a lot of people showing up at the polls to vote because they want to be able to have some input because they feel like if they vote, they'll have some say not least of which is a say in uh, finances and economics and the ability and the opportunity to get to produce and have some financial security. You know, that's something that concerns all of us, let's be honest, and that's something that motivates a lot of us to turn out and vote. And that certainly is likely um, one of the reasons voting was so high this past Tuesday. Also this past week, I think even bigger than the turnout for Super Tuesday is the coronavirus. (laughs) Not just the health impacts, but the financial impacts of this virus worldwide. Um, S&P has been up and down and up and down. I think it ended on Friday on a down note. Um, Industries, the airline industry is uh, reporting worldwide that there should be uh, 63 billion. When I say these numbers, I'm like, I can't even fathom them. But they reported 63 billion to 113 billion, which is a lot of billions out there. You know, even if it's just $63 billion loss from the airline industry, other industries as well, energy reporting these losses. Um, And that's what this psalm is about. This psalm is about financial security. Are we going to be secure financially? And it's interesting that I think right from the start, it starts off with addressing all people. This isn't just to the rich who have something. This isn't just to the poor who are grasping and working and trying to get stuff. It's to all people. All people need to hear this message. The poor people, it's exhorting, saying, don't be afraid. Don't be fearful in times of trouble. When you see other people cheating, swindling, their wealth and abundance increasing, don't be afraid. Don't be envious of them. And to the rich, it's saying, don't put your confidence. When you're acquiring a lot, when you've got some wealth, you've got some abundance, people are looking at you and thinking you're doing pretty good. Don't put your confidence in what you have, in the praise of others, in these temporary earthly blessings. And one reason the psalm is saying, pretty clearly, not to put your hope, your confidence in financial security, in your wealth, is because we're all going to have the same fate. We're all going to die. Death is the great equalizer. It says rich or poor, wise or stupid, we're all going to die. It says, I think verse 7 through 9 points out, No one has enough money to ransom their lives to pay God so that they'll never see the grave, the pit, and live on forever. Nobody can do it. I think verse 10 has some of the strongest imagery. It says, 
All must perish and leave their wealth to others. And then again in verse 17, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down with him. You know, and then the psalmist kind of moves on to paint a pretty dark picture of those who put their confidence in financial wealth, in what they can have, in their possessions. It says, if we put our confidence in that, we're appointed for Sheol. Sheol is a synonym, grave the pit. It's what you're appointed for. Then it goes on to say, um, death is their shepherd. That literally means in the Hebrew that death tends to them or grazes them. The King James Version translated as death will feed on them. Very dark picture for those who put their confidence in financial security. It says there's no place of belonging and the upright will usurp them. And then two times it has this phrase that I really liked. It said, man in his pomp will not remain. Or man in his pomp is without understanding and is like a beast that perishes. The Deirdre Chance translation of that would be, if you put your confidence in wealth, you're like a dead rodent on the side of the road. That's what it's like. And the psalm ends with that. It seems kind of noteworthy. So what's the problem What's the problem in us that God needs to warn us not to put our hope in finances, in wealth? You know, I don't think any of us, logically speaking, are sitting here and going, wait, what? I can't bring my house with me after I die? Wait, I can't bring my car, my phone, my clothes? I don't think logically any of us are like, what? I didn't, I didn't realize that. Hey, thanks. Now that cleared that up. I don't think that's the issue. And this problem isn't a new problem. It's been around since the psalm was written. You know, it's not like this is a problem, hoping in financial security of just American society. You know, this is something for current American capitalistic society. If we just change the form, if we go socialistic or if we, you know, uh, communistic, that'll, that'll fix the problems. It's not what this psalm is saying. You know, if this psalm was written under King David, then these problems were going on during a monarchy. If it was written during the exile, then it was an agricultural merchant trading. The problem isn't in the form of our society. We don't just need another form. The problem seems to be in us. Christian psychologist and theologian Eric Johnson said, humans, this side of the fall, of a strong disposition of opposition to God and his ways. You know, this fear of financial problems for both the rich and the poor is real. The desire to be secure, to be taken care of, to maybe just enjoy life a little bit is real. But the question is, What do we do with that fear? What do we do with that desire? Do we come to God with what I would say is a legitimate desire? It's legitimate to want to be taken care of, to be provided for. I even think it's legitimate to want to enjoy life a bit. But what do we do with that? Do we come to God and say, God, I'm going to look to you. I'm going to trust however you work this out in my life. I'm going to look to you to take care of me. Or 
do we kind of want to look to this world and earthly possessions and the things we can get to feel good, to feel secure? Seems like there's something in us that is a strong disposition of opposition to God and his ways. There's something in us that doesn't want to have to need God. We'd kind of rather be autonomous, just trust in ourselves. We'd kind of rather be able to work hard, acquire a lot, accomplish a lot, and somehow think or believe, look what I've done. We want others to do that. Look what they've done. We want that a little bit more than this risky faith thing in God. We want to be confident in ourselves. We like that glory. We like that praise. We'd like to have a little more control on it. And if we're struggling financially, our hope, the source of our hope is still the same. We want to be able to do it ourselves. We're just struggling. We haven't been able to do it. And so now we're envious. We're envious of those who could. And we're insecure. But we have the same desire. We want to be autonomous. We want to be sovereign. We want to do it ourselves. And in addition to like our fleshly nature that has this disposition, we're also tempted to believe lies. Lies from the enemy. Lies that tell us things like, this here and now, it really does last. What you can get here and now really is what delights, what will take care of you. But it's a lie. As we get older, we start to realize, whoa, that went really fast. That isn't true. But that desire for wealth and abundance and people's admiration sometimes feels like it's going to last. But God is trying to tell us it's a lie. And we can look around us, I think, and easily find people who are making decisions that are driven by a fear for financial security. I can think of ladies I've worked with who love dealing drugs. They loved it because it was fast and it was easy money and it was a lot of money. And people respected them. They had some fear of others when they walked in the room. One lady I was talking to said she loved to be able to walk into a house. People are trying to use their phones through Wi-Fi and just drop a wad of cash and everybody be like, oh, look at what she can do. Look at that. That's great. She loved that. Um, another girl I've worked with, she, she always struggled in high school and she felt like when she graduated, like she never really, she had some learning disabilities. She felt like she never really did get an education, and so afterwards she felt like um, she believed, like, I could never get a job that would actually provide for me and take care of me. And that fear of being taken care of, that legitimate fear, drove her to make some decisions to put her confidence in some pretty unhealthy places. So she stayed in an abusive relationship with a boyfriend who later became the dad of her two kids. And she's got some pretty deeply embedded pain and suffering. I mean, it's, humanly, it seems irreparable, both her and her kids. 
but that came out of a desire to be taken care of financially, but looked to something other than God for that care. You know, and even on the other end of the spectrum, we can look at um, successful business people who accomplish a lot and acquire a lot of abundance. And then when things go bad, when they lose some or almost all of their wealth, their life isn't even worth it. They're willing to take their lives. You know, probably the most famous historic one would be the stock market crash of 1929, right? Where suicide rate throughout the country and New York City increased because of a fear of financial security. Can affect our mental health, can drive our decisions. You know, and I think, you know, what is going to happen with the economic impact of the coronavirus? Our family is attached to the airlines. I know other people in this church. Income is attached to the airlines. Um, I think retirement funds, a lot of people's retirement funds are attached to what the stock market is doing. It's a, it's a real concern right now, and politicians are not hesitating to exploit the fear of both the rich and the poor of their ability to be able to produce and provide for themselves and have those opportunities so that they can get votes, so that they can have power, so that they can have money. It's just this tangled mess of false securities that aren't going to last, that aren't going to meet the deepest longings of our heart to be taken care of, to enjoy life a little bit. So how does that fear of financial security really impact each of us and the decisions that we make? What are we tempted to put our confidence in that that'll take care of us physically? What are we tempted to think that if I just had that, I'd be satisfied? If I just had that, I'd be happy. I could enjoy life. I'd be noticed. I'd be appreciated in my work. Maybe I'd even have some fame. I have some kids who compete pretty heavily in rodeo. I see that a lot, the pursuit of fame to get sponsorships, music. I was listening to musician on NPR or even other informal or formal awards and recognitions in our various fields. What are we tempted to believe that if I have that, that'll meet my needs? And how could Jesus and the gospel really help us with financial security? How does the gospel of Jesus Christ help us to overcome real fears of financial security and give us a different confidence than momentary wealth and blessing. Verse 7, it says, no one can ransom their life or pay to God the price of their life to live forever and not decay in the pit. Nobody can do that. Nobody's rich enough. Nobody's able to pay the price of their life except for Jesus. Jesus is rich enough He's the only one who could afford, so to speak, to pay the price of life and redeem his life or anybody else's from the grave, from Sheol, from the pit, from decaying in the pit. Jesus is rich enough because he, as God, clothed in this humanly fleshly stuff, could live a perfect life 
And then part of being that perfect life went to the cross, took on my sins, took on your sins, took on the sins of the whole world, took on the curse of sin in this world with his shed blood on the cross. But because he never died, of course, I mean, because he never sinned, death could not hold him down. He could pay the price of overcoming the grave. He's the only one who could pay that. He could rise from the dead, conquer the grave, pay that payment. Death had no ownership on him, and he's eternal. He will never decay in the pit. And God the Son has the power to give and to pay the ransom for your life and my life, to redeem our lives. Not with something temporary, but with something eternal that can never rot or decay in a pit. And what do we choose? Do we choose the eternal? Or we choose things that can rot and decay in a pit? Like a dead rodent on the side of the road. You know, by faith when we believe in Christ, we have faith that when he returns, we too will have a resurrected body that will never decay. And just because we receive this freely doesn't mean it wasn't costly. So if it's really true that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, if it's really true that he paid the ransom, if he's the only one who's rich enough and eternal enough to pay the ransom for my soul and your soul, If that's true, then that's something we should go all in for. You know, you think of different investments that are a risk. This is not a risk. (laughs) This is something that you would go all in for. I mean, the psalm paints this picture of you decide. Do you want to pay for your life? Or do you want to let Jesus pay for your life? I think verse 17, um, or verse 15 it is, that says, God will ransom my life from the pit and receive me. It's a resurrection hope. In this psalm, we're painted an exhortation of don't put your confidence in foolish confidence in this world and wealth. There's a resurrection hope to really believe in, to really go all in for. So what would it look like to live and operate in the fact that God holds the keys to life and death What would it look like to surrender to God's true power, to not try to get your hands on it and feel like I've got to do it? What would it look like to say, God, you're in control. Triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, you're the one who can ransom my life, not material prosperity. What would it look like to trust our financial situations to the power of Jesus Christ's ransom. You know, how does knowing that Jesus paid the ransom for each of us, something that we could never afford to pay, really change us? I saw that difference in my dad's life. So my dad... um, Either when he was three or eight, I was told both as a kid. So three or eight, his dad died. I was told he either died 
cleaning a loaded gun, or he committed suicide. As you get older, you're like, I was suicide. Um, but either way, my dad's dad died tragically when my dad was young. And my dad worked hard with the support of my grandma, put himself through college, put himself through medical school, put himself through residency, became a cardiovascular surgeon. He worked hard. And he acquired a lot. He had a lot of abundance of wealth. When I was young, I could see that's where his hope was. I mean, my parents were divorced, so functionally, he had two homes on the canals of the Gulf of Mexico with swimming poles, with boats. I mean, he had a, this is the 80s, so Wellcraft Scarab, if you remember Miami Vice, another sailboat. Later, he got a 54-foot Bertram fishing boat. We had a little Boston whaler so that we could ski behind it. We had a little sailboat that I was really good at capsizing. Um, I couldn't go to the grocery store without somebody saying to him, oh, Dr. Aylward, thank you so much. You saved my life or you saved my husband's life. He got a lot of praises too. We had memberships at yacht clubs and guest memberships at other yacht clubs. We had, he had a lot. He had acquired a lot. He had worked hard and he had accomplished and acquired a lot. He had done it. When I was in college, though, the IRS contacted him and said that a tax shelter he had put his money in about 15 or 20 years before was illegal. And I think if I remember, if I have the details right, he charged like 200% interest. So he had to declare bankruptcy and cash out, I know, over a million dollars retirement fund. I mean, it wasn't like he wasn't taken care of, but still, it was his money he earned. It's gone. He couldn't do anything about it. And then when my youngest was born a few weeks later, he had a major heart attack. It's like the quintessential story of the heart surgeon who has a heart attack. He was very humbled by it. He had to have a pacemaker. Just that physical presence of the pacemaker was very humbling to him. But it caused some changes in his confidence that were real. By the time he died, cancer took his life. Maybe 10 or so years after that major heart attack, his confidence was no longer in this wealth that he could see, could quickly shift and move. wasn't in what people thought of him. His confidence was that his heavenly father had prepared a room for him in advance. He had a place of belonging, like this psalm said, because Jesus Christ had gone ahead. You know, even for myself, sometimes I kind of feel split down the middle. You know, I was raised for 22 years under my father's provision. You know, I had a lot. I got alkylates as the daughter of a cardiovascular surgeon. Then I got married. And um, as a stay-at-home mom, and we had five kids, and my husband uh, worked as an AMP mechanic for the airlines, and then later I became a teacher and very much a part of the working class, and so kind of had this division of classes. And I can share my background, and I know people are going to think good, maybe, of me, what I had, what I got to experience. Probably not so much with what I have now. (laughs) 
but I have both. You know, which, which defines me? Which gives me my confidence? Or maybe neither one gives me my confidence. Maybe my confidence comes from the value and worth of Jesus Christ's ransom for my soul. That is my value. That is your value. That is my confidence. That is what sheds light and drives my decision and how I operate more and more as I reflect more on the value and worth of Jesus' ransom. What would be different in your life if you meditated on the truth that this life isn't forever? You can't ever pay the ransom for your life. What would be different in your life if you meditated on the value and worth of Jesus Christ's ransom for you? How would that affect your confidence? What would be different if you didn't just give mental assent, but you gave heartfelt, faith-based consent to that? If you operated in that confidence that God is in control of all things, he's rescued your life from the pit, surely he'll take care of you here. What if we internalize these truths so deeply that these truths shed light on our decisions as we navigate it through life's choices? What if we in our house churches and communities and local churches talked about these things and were honest when, yeah, I kind of want to put my hope in this. Yeah, I feel like if this doesn't happen, it's done. What if we talked about this and learned how to grow in our confidence in God's provision? You know, and how does the worth of Jesus' ransom of your life and my life give us a different perspective on earthly possessions? Does our life show the value and worth of Jesus' ransom? When we're confident in God's overall power to ransom our soul from decaying in the pits in the grave— not just in word, but truly confident in that. We're stable. We're steadfast. We're secure. It's a lack of worry, a lack of envy, a lack of fear. We're not trying to hope in all these different things. It doesn't look like an anxious flurry of an activity, a wringing of hands as something happens. Uh, if this, if only this, if only this. It doesn't look like sacrificing our health our mental health, putting ourselves in dangerous situations, cheating, swindling, in hopes to be taken care of. You know, one day we're going to wake up in the eternal kingdom of God. And this life, it's going to seem like a dream we woke up from, a confusing dream that never really made any sense. And when we rightly value and experience God's resurrection hope, we're satisfied. We're satisfied and we have peace and steadfastness and stability.